You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray that uh, the eyes of our hearts would be open uh, to what you would have uh, to say to us about a very uh, prevalent issue uh, in our world today. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Okay, so this, uh, the world has no problem uh, talking about sex. Uh, personally, I have a tremendous problem talking about sex. So if I turn beet red, uh, I'm just going to push through, and, uh, and you can just remember that. Uh, I embarrass uh, very, uh, very easily. Uh, we're all bombarded uh, with the issue of uh, sex, especially the idea of sexual expression in the world today. And one of the things that the church has failed to do is to actually address it from a biblical perspective. We just, we don't talk about it. We just sort of assume, especially for the younger kids, that they would just kind of get it. And, uh, and actually what ends up happening is that we walk away, uh, especially as high schoolers move into college, with uh, uh, an unbiblical idea of what sex uh, is about and what the Bible has to say about it. Uh, basically, uh, sex is something to be avoided at all costs. And if you can make it through high school and college without having sex, uh, then you're a real Christian. Uh, and so uh, I'm going to hope in the next half hour uh, uh, to unpack as much as we can. I will say this is that at the Advent, um, we have a, uh, a curriculum uh, called The Bible Talks About That, where we take, uh, is it sixth graders? I think it's sixth graders. Uh, we take and uh, we talk about what the Bible has to say about sex, and uh, we also bring in folks. Charlie, are you here this morning? Charlie Sharp, who's an obstetrician. And, um, and we gather the sixth graders and we break them up between girls and boys uh, and, um, and, they do the, uh, and we do talk about that. Uh, but but I, I would pray that, that we wouldn't just leave it at uh, sixth grade. And that, in fact, many of us today really don't have much of a clue as what the Bible has to say about sex. And so uh, let's start by looking at uh, a biblical foundation for our argument. And actually, if you're going to talk about sex, you have to talk about what God looks like. What does God look like? Well, uh, we see in uh, Genesis chapter 1 actually uh, a hint at what God looks like. Uh, God is neither male uh, nor female, uh, but God transcends gender. And yet, we see in Genesis chapter 1 verse 27 that what God looks like is in both men and women. Not individually, but actually both of them respect, uh, both of them uh, represent what God looks like. So God, this is 127, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So if men and women are created in the image of God, uh, then that means that we reflect what God looks like. And I don't have time to get into uh, the details of, of how that manifests itself. But uh, just to say uh, that there is something about uh, men and women that represent God. And men and women, I don't know if you know this, don't share the same characteristics, that men and women are different. 
this is one of the things that the world is fighting mightily against, that actually there's no difference between a man and a woman. But if you've been married for 15 minutes, uh, you know uh, that that is true. Now, I'm not going to go so far as to say that men are from Mars and that women are from Venus. I don't think that that's true. Uh, but what I would say is that actually men and women are different. And that that means that there is something about maleness and something about femaleness. Right? There's something about a man and a woman together that actually best represents what God looks like. And these two are not interchangeable. Uh, that we are created. right? Maleness and femaleness, or male and female, are created, not cosmic chance. That's how we're made. We're different. Now, we may not like our differences. Indeed, in the aftermath of the fall, certain things were given to men and certain things were given to women that we don't find very enjoyable. And yet, they are ours to bear. So if you look at chapter 3, verses 16 through 19, uh, to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, and there's a lot to unpack in all this, but just you'll see what I'm getting at, you shall not eat it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And so, uh, here we have, as a result of the fall, God saying that there are some things that are actually uh, exclusive, uh, especially to a woman, uh, that you're not going to like as a result of the fall. And that is, uh, childbirth is um, not a pleasant experience. Uh, and uh, it's... It's only, I think, that the Holy Spirit does a work that if you have multiple children, uh, God makes you forget what being pregnant and having a child is like um, in order for you to have another one, which is good. Uh, but also uh, for uh, that, that work is going to stink. Uh, work is going to be hard. Uh, for many of us, it's not going to be enjoyable. And I run into more and more men who really feel like work is just something that is nine to five, five days a week, and they can't wait to save enough so that they can retire and be done with work. And again, that's another story for another time. And yet, uh, those are things that are for us to bear as a result of the fall as men and women. And so marriage, the marriage bond, is a reflection to this world of what God looks like. One might be able to say, exclusively so, that if there's any thing in the world that most represents what God looks like. It's marriage between a man and a woman because they represent the image of God in their own respective ways. Now this isn't to say that there are other types of relationships that are not marked by love, mutual respect, sacrifice, and so on. But if they're not marriage between a man and a woman, they can't fully represent to the world what God is like. Ironically, to say that anyone or anything can be married to one another apart from consideration of sex and gender, is to deny the godness of the opposite sex. Men and women are not interchangeable. And so for a man to say, I don't need a woman to marry, a man will do, or in the case of the woman in Minnesota, I don't need anyone to marry, I'm going to marry myself, is in fact to be sexist. Now, 
Because of these things, marriage is much bigger than just confined to the Christian faith. Because here in the Garden of Eden, we have our foreparents, right? Adam and Eve, and out of one blood has God made all the nations of the world. And that means that marriage often is spoken of as a sacrament. But it's actually not a sacrament. Uh, there are two sacraments, the Lord's Supper and baptism. Uh, and actually what we're seeing here in Genesis about the man leaving and cleaving to his wife, this is in creation. So marriage is actually an ordinance of creation, which means that marriage is for non-Christians too. So that's why in the preface to the marriage service, if you've ever been to a wedding at an Episcopal church, uh, we say that Holy Scripture commends it to be honored among all people. Right? All people. So whether you're not a Christian or not, God has very specific purposes for marriage, which we're going to get into. And uh, one of those uh, purposes, in fact, maybe the bigger purpose for marriage, is that it's not just, uh, it's not just an image of who God is as we are made in God's image, but actually Christian marriage, this is where we get specific, Christian marriage is the closest thing on earth that we have to show us how Christ loves his, loves his church. That marriage is also about gospel reenactment. So if you look at Ephesians chapter 5, we see what Paul has to say about this gospel reenactment. Uh, beginning at verse 20, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as, the, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present to the, the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. And so the two institutions that should show us how Christ loves his church are the church and marriage. But it's a whole lot easier to skate in, when it comes to the church. Right? Because, quite frankly, we don't have to live with one another. Right? Because, you know, it's so funny that um, you, know, you, you can't wait to kind of get out of the house when you're a kid and go off to college. Uh, but the pressure cooker that it is to have a roommate, and in college you can't wait uh, to no longer have a roommate. And yet, the irony is you have no idea that when you get married, you're getting a roommate. Uh, but for the rest of your life, at least next semester, you can get a new roommate. Uh, but this is a roommate uh, for, for life. And uh, what it demonstrates to us, and what we often get it wrong in marriage, is that we think that the two becoming one flesh is this really romantic, well, one, it is a physical union. It is a physical union. Uh, but the language that Paul uses is actually bigger than that. Uh, he talks about the life, that you have two lives that become one life. And we think that this melding together of these two lives 
is lovely and beautiful and something to behold when it's like tectonic plates crashing together uh, or two worlds uh, colliding. That in fact, this is the most jarring thing about marriage that you can talk to new, uh, premarital people about till they're blue in the face, but they won't get until they actually experience it. That you look at your spouse and say, you know, this marriage would look a whole would work a whole lot better if you were just more like me, right? Because it turns out again uh, that you are different, and yet marriage more than the church takes on a vivid role in this witness. Uh, for the role of husband and wife are more distinct than the roles that we have in the church, and so loving one another, in spite. Uh, and even because of our differences, and that marriage puts on display what real love looks like. Because how did Jesus love us? Christ Christ came into the world to save awesome, compatible people. (laughs) right? Or um, uh, this is a true saying of worthy of all men to receive that Christ came into the world. Right? That's not it at all. And in the same way marriage Real love in marriage is loving someone in their unloveliness. So when you take the vow for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, what you really mean is for poor, for sick, and for worse. Because it's really easy to love someone who's rich, hot, got it all together, and is awesome, right? That's easy. Easy to love somebody in, in all of that. But real love is actually loving someone when you see them uh, in their brokenness. And yet the love that the world talks about actually is uh, see you later. Right? When we see somebody in their brokenness, and you even hear that in marriages sometimes to say, um, I didn't sign up for that. I didn't sign up for this. Well, what did you think you signed up for? Right? That this is exactly what it is and what Paul is saying right here. And it's like, this is exactly the thing that Christian marriage is supposed to represent. Christian marriage is not about the groom coaching uh, church league basketball and the uh, wife uh, teaching Sunday school. Or I mean, those are all good things in and of themselves, and I would encourage you, if we had a basketball league, uh, to do that. Uh, but actually, that's not really what Christian marriage is about. Christian marriage is about living out the gospel to the world. That's what Christian marriage is about. And actually, the sexual union between a husband and a wife represents that because when uh, you're in the midst of the sexual act, you're incredibly vulnerable, right? I mean, you're, you're, you're if, I mean, I, 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 I'm the only person that thinks of these things. Uh, but like, someone could creep in in my room and kill me, and I wouldn't know they're there, right? Why? Because, because you're not paying attention to that, right? You're totally consumed uh, with what's going on. Lauren, you might want to leave. Uh, <laughs> You really are. You really are giving yourself uh, over to the person, and that's actually something in marriage that's really difficult because uh, we've been taught that sex is uh, primarily uh, about it's a right to be able to engage in sexual activity uh, is a right, and uh, it's it's gotten so out of kilter. And we think that having sex is the ultimate form of human fulfillment and that sexual expression is the end-all, be-all in our lives. And that's 100% false. So I remember talking to a group of about 40 guys uh, from a church in this area, not the Advent, and they really wanted, they were all in their early 20s and they wanted to talk about marriage. 
and it inevitably led to sex. And one of them said, I can't wait to be married so that I can have sex. And I hear a lot of young Christian guys say that. And now that I've been married for a little bit, I would have looked at them and say, if you think that that's the best part and the end-all be-all of marriage, you're in for a rude awakening. <laughs> right, well, one, because sex is so much bigger, right? so much bigger than, than your relationship. And actually, sex is something in the marriage relationship that it's often not fireworks and great. Actually, it's, uh, there are some times when it can actually reduce you to, to a pretty low level. Like you may not feel like you're connecting sexually with your husband or your wife. And if that's the case, uh, it really makes you think that maybe our marriage is on the rocks because we don't seem to be sexually compatible. And yet, I think the story, and because nobody, nobody talked, y'all all talked to me about this, so I can say almost every couple experiences that at some point in time. Because marriage is not primarily about sexual compatibility, and it's actually something that you need to work at. So Tim and Kathy Keller, Tim is the pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian in New York City, said that they actually didn't hit their stride sexually in their marriage, where they actually felt like they were looking out for the needs of the other person and that they actually were able to connect sexually until they were in their 40s. Almost 20 years of marriage before they felt like that they were actually able to connect there. But it was because they were able to connect in a much deeper way, understanding what it means to be one flesh with their spouse uh, in marriage is bigger than the sexual action or the act of sex. But in our society, this is a big deal. And everybody thinks that sex is the end-all be-all. So I had a friend who worked at the White House when I was working for a ministry in Washington, D.C., and the District of Columbia decided that they were going to give benefits to domestic partners. Well, he and I lived together, uh, along with four other guys, uh, but we lived together. Uh, we loved one another. We lived together in college at UVA. Uh, we planned on being friends for the rest of our lives. Uh, we really cared deeply about one another. And so we're domestic partners. And so uh, we actually, he had really good insurance because he worked at the White House. And so we actually applied for me to get the White House insurance. <laughs> and the employment office, they hem the, the benefits office hemmed and hawed about it, and they wouldn't get around, and they wouldn't. And, and finally, my friend said, you know, why, what is the holdup here? We meet all of the qualifications. And what they said to Dan was, uh, what, cat's out of the bag, Dan. Uh, what they said to Dan was, um, but you're not gay. Which means what? What defined that relationship to them was what? Sex. So we've reduced relationships. Uh, the default position is, is sex. Uh, and, and we've made uh, much more about it. And in fact, we've made our own sexuality uh, as our identity. If our relationships or how we relate to one another is reduced simply to the act of sex. We're completely lost, and we may already be there. The objectification of individuals for self-fulfillment dominates our culture. I want to have sex to make me feel good, and I deserve to feel good, reduces the other person involved to an object that is to fill the needs of the self. But actually, the two become one in a very different way. Apart from the act of sex, I'm not sure if people today have any way of relating to someone of the opposite sex, 
Moreover, because sex is so dominant, they have no way of interacting with people of the same sex. This has happened to me multiple times, even here in Birmingham. It happened to me, actually, Friday night, where uh, we went to the Ellerton Hotel, and uh, we went up uh, to the rooftop, which is way too hip for me. Um, I, I don't have a beard, and I don't wear flannel. And so uh, we were up there, and uh, there was uh, uh, Lauren and I were with another husband and wife, and the girls went downstairs uh, to uh, sit at the table where we closed out our tab. And, uh, and there we were. We, we both were well-dressed and uh, a trust well-groomed. And we'd never, we had no idea where the restaurant was. And when we went downstairs to the lobby and presented ourselves at the desk looking for the restaurant, uh, it was very clear that they thought we were what? A couple. That the two men were together. And, uh, and so I made a big joke about that uh, and, uh, for the rest of the, of the night. Uh, but don't we do that when we go to a really nice restaurant and we see two men sitting together? We think what? I wonder if they're gay. Which means what? We've bought into the lie. We've bought into the lie. And in fact, as I said, that we have a hard enough time connecting with someone of the opposite sex and we see that especially in uh, young people today, where now you have more and more people uh, hooking up with one another, uh, having sex with one another, without really knowing the person at all. I mean, really, they introduce themselves the next morning. I mean, this is, this is pretty commonplace. Why? Because they desire to connect with someone, and they think that this is the way to do it. And yet, it's actually about self-fulfillment. In the same way in our culture, because it's so dominated by sex, we don't even know how to relate to people of the same sex. So, I mean, I think, again, women do this a lot better than men. Uh, and I don't think that men are reluctant, necessarily, to go out to a restaurant uh, together because of what people might perceive. Uh, but that's the fruit of, I think, a much deeper underlying issue, that we really don't know how to relate to one another. And even today, amongst younger people, uh, this, I mean, it was five, six years ago, we had a high schooler ask us, uh, Lauren and I asking for some dating advice, and she said, well, it's the boy's job to text first, isn't it? I'm like, what? Text? You know, I mean, what do you mean it's the boy's job uh, or responsibility uh, to text uh, first? Uh, there is a complete uh, lack of ability to communicate uh, with one another in our culture, and I think that that stuff is coming home uh, to roost. Because we have fewer and fewer people who have deep, meaningful relationships. And that's having an impact on our marriages uh, because they really can't understand the nature of being one flesh beyond uh, the sex act and even in same-sex uh, friendships, uh, being able to relate to one another and actually uh, talk about uh, what is real beyond sports and our jobs. And so if we find our sexuality as an identity, then actually that's damnable. Identity in anything apart from Jesus Christ is damnable. It is. Uh, and, and I'm not the first person to say it from this lectern. Uh, about 15 years ago, uh, Paul Zoll did a wonderful series on identity. And he took on all kinds of gender and identity, uh, sexuality and identity, uh, race and identity, gender and identity. And I would commend those to you. It was a great series. Uh, and that was Paul's bottom line thesis, that any identity apart from Jesus Christ is damnable. So let's look. Let's get practical in the next five. This, this is the part where I really uh, start blushing. 
Uh, let's get practical and look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, where Paul actually talks about what what sex looks like uh, in marriage. Uh, first, if you go to the latter part of chapter 6, verses 12 through 20, uh, that's worth reading because he actually talks about uh, what happens when you have uh, sex outside of the context of marriage between a man and a woman. And so uh, if you're one of those people that say, well, I believe that marriage is between a man and a woman, well, why? Because the Bible says so. Well, where does it say that? Um, I hope that I've given you some background in Genesis and in Ephesians, uh, but now Paul is going to get very specific here in uh, 1 uh, Corinthians. So this is 1 Corinthians chapter 7, beginning with the first verse. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of the temptation of sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time. You may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. Okay. So in the next four minutes, let me unpack uh, some pretty heavy stuff. Uh, it may come as a shock to you, but here actually what Paul is saying, that in the context of marriage, you should not just be sexually active, you should be really active. Uh, you should actually have sex a lot. And you shouldn't deny sex, because this is where it belongs. As Ed Salmon would say uh, to his clergy, uh, fire belongs in the fireplace. Uh, when it gets out of the fireplace, that's where you have trouble. Uh, and so this is fire in the fireplace. Uh, it's where it belongs. And uh, very effective. Uh, this is where it belongs. And Paul is saying that if you should, if you're married, uh, you uh, should have sex. Now when he says it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, he's talking about actually for those who are single. He's not saying like it's been misinterpreted and why I think that Christians have such a misunderstanding of sex that it's actually good because sex is really bad. Right? Do you all know about the Shakers? They make really nice furniture. Well, they did make really nice furniture. All right, the Shakers, uh, there's a Shaker village outside of Lexington, Kentucky. Uh, I actually met one of the last Shakers, an elderly woman up in New England. And uh, the Shakers were a strange religious sect uh, in, within Christianity. Uh, they believed in marriage, but they believed in celibate marriage. So needless to say, there are no longer any shakers. Uh, in uh, it's a tough sell. Uh, it's a tough sell. And, uh, and actually, if you became pregnant, you got kicked out. Which is how, I mean, how crazy is that? You're married, but you can't have sex. Uh, when that's exactly uh, where and when uh, you're supposed to be having sex. So Paul is saying it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman outside the context of marriage. 
But he shouldn't do that. But because of the sexual tempta- the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Now, this has been lost, and they stripped it out of the 1979 prayer book, that one of the reasons for marriage is actually to avoid sexual immorality, the fire in the fireplace. So let me read to you the original dearly beloved uh, line from the marriage service. Dearly beloved, we are gathered together here in the sight of God and in the face of this congregation to join together this man and this woman in holy matrimony, which is an honorable estate, instituted of God in the time of man's infancy, uh, innocency. Right? Remember, instituted in creation, signifying to us the mystical union that is betwixt Christ and his church, which holy estate Christ adorned and beautified with his presence and first miracle that he wrought in Cana of Galilee and is commended of St. Paul to be honored among all men, and therefore is not by any to be enterprised nor taken in hand unadvisedly, lightly, or wantonly to satisfy men's carnal lusts and appetites like brute beasts that have no understanding, but reverently, discreetly, advisedly, soberly, and in the fear of God, duly considering the causes for which matrimony was ordained. First, it was ordained for the procreation of children, to be brought up in the fear and nurture of the Lord and to the praise of his holy name. Secondly, um, it was ordained for a remedy against sin and to avoid fornication, that such persons as have not the gift of self-control might marry, that's a direct reference to 1 Corinthians 7, and keep themselves undefiled members of Christ's body. And thirdly, it was ordained for the mutual society, help and comfort that one ought to have of the other, both in prosperity and adversity. And you notice after that, the clergyman then says, uh, if anyone knows any lawful reason why they, they may, not be, may not be married, speak now forever, hold your peace. The key word there is lawful. Like the groom has a wife in Costa Rica, right? something like that. But then they ask the bride and groom, if you know any reason why you may not be united in marriage lawfully, and in accordance with God's word, you do now confess it. Which means, if you're not into these things, which is the witness of the scripture as to what marriage is, then don't get married. Because you're getting married not in accordance with God's word, you're doing it for yourself. And I think that that has really uh, uh, had huge ramifications uh, on, uh, on our society. And so Paul talks about separation here, and I'm not going to get into it, but Paul talks about oh, to separation, that there are times when a man and a woman ought to separate. Firstly, uh, if both parties agree to, to not have sexual relations with one another, sound like Bill Clinton now, uh, to, uh, to not be uh, intimate with one another, that has to be by mutual agreement. It's not one person saying no, but both of them, and only for a time certain. And Paul even says, this is a concession, not a command. Right? So if, if there's an agreement for whatever reason, in addition to that, if there's a feeling of, uh, you know, this isn't working. Not just the sexual part, but, but our marriage is really uh, on the rocks. And it may be that there's one party who really is uh, maybe being verbally abusive, uh, maybe uh, needs to have a wake-up call. Paul actually says that maybe there's something to be said about separate. Now, the word separate is not the equivalent of divorce. Because Paul says that you ought to separate in order for what? That you might be reconciled uh, to one another. But in our culture, we get divorced for what? 
to get another spouse. We get divorced so that we can find a better version of, of what we've had. And I think it was rightfully said by uh, one of my uh, friends who was contemplating uh, divorce. He said, you know, uh, and I think a woman could say this about a man too, uh, do I want the crazy I know or the crazy I don't know? <laughs> right? that, that actually, uh, that, that marriage is again not about uh, self-fulfillment, uh, but that actually we're all broken vessels and uh, living together is really, really hard. But sex is the arena. Well, I'll say this. The two things that, the two arenas in which marriage fights normally break out, in my experience, is in the arenas of sex and money. Now, you actually may think you're arguing about money, but you're actually arguing about something else. Just money is the manifestation of the issue in your marriage. Uh, but... Uh, Sex is often used as a tool to manipulate uh, the other partner, and so you might withhold uh, to try to teach them a lesson. Uh, or uh, it might be the avoidance of sex because you're avoiding uh, a much deeper issue uh, that you don't want to talk about, and sex makes you feel vulnerable in a way that makes you feel uh, unsafe. And so in those situations, uh, actually being honest about what's bothering you and getting it out in the open, uh, because as Paul says, yeah, sex is part and parcel of, of marriage between a husband and a wife, and therefore ought to happen uh, regularly. Now, I don't know what regularly means, uh, and I do think that that's something that the two spouses need to come uh, to some sort of agreement with. And, uh, and I'm going to go ahead and tell uh, a story on, on Lauren and I. It's not that embarrassing, I promise you. That, I mean, because one of the things that happens is that it's not so much marital conflict that often brings an end to sexual intimacy, uh, but it's this thing called children. And, um, and, and so it might sound really awful, but you, you, know, you almost get to the point where you're like, okay, we've got to put this on the calendar. Right? We've got to actually put this time on the calendar. And people might say, well, that's really not romantic at all. And I'm reminded, what's the most illicit sex that you can have? An affair. And what is an affair? Planned sex. I'll meet you at this place at this time. And, but, but you see, we don't... So I, I think that that if, if there is that issue of, well, we just don't seem to have time, I think that married couples ought to make time. I think that married couples ought to make time because you can actually take the Bible and throw it out the window and you find that marital satisfaction is uh, much higher, I mean, significantly higher uh, when you have people who are sexually satisfied uh, within the context uh, of, uh, of their marriage because it's actually representative of something else. So if you're not, again, if you're not having sex with one another, it's actually because there's another issue going on in the marriage that probably needs to be addressed. Now, I've only scratched the surface, and, uh, and I've said a lot of things, so I'm going to leave it open to questions, comments, and concerns. Well, in the heavenly kingdom, the bride of us will no longer be in marriage, so... Uh, is this love replaces the physical? Yeah, so in marriage, uh, I mean, in he this might be uh, a really welcome word to some of you. Uh, in, mar in heaven, there's no marriage. Um, that it is really is till death do you part. Now, the Mormons do believe that marriage is eternal uh, in the heavens. Uh, Christians don't believe that. 
Uh, and a lot of people are bummed by that. Uh, however, I still think that when you get to heaven and if you and your spouse are believers, you will know and have a sharing in the fact that, that you were married here on earth, uh, but actually your intimacy and with other people is going to be much deeper than even the intimacy between your, the husband and a wife here on earth. And so C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, it's like asking a child, would you like, um, would you like chocolate or an all-expense-paid trip to Lake Tahoe? But what's the child going to say? Chocolate. Why? Because that's all they know. Uh, that's all they know. Uh, and so in the same way, when we say, well, we're upset because there's not going to be any sex in heaven, actually what's going to be there is greater than, than sex. And so even sex will come to an end, which will be very... I mean, I, I did a paper once in uh, college on the sitcom Friends. Remember that? It used to come on NBC. And um, it has some Birmingham connections. Uh, but uh, I, I wrote, actually, on the one hand, this show, even though we all know it's fictional, is actually really impossible because nobody had a job that made enough money to sustain that lifestyle. Uh, and my hypothesis for why the show finally ended, even though it was much love, they ran out of people to sleep with. They, and they weren't going to introduce new characters. And so for people who are into that kind of stuff, yeah, heaven may actually be a great disappointment. I don't think they're interested in Of the uh, Holy Trinity, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest is love, um, it's my understanding that the greatest is love due to the fact that love is eternal. Yes. Uh, you just addressed the, uh, the fact that sex may not be eternal. Mm -hmm. Physical love making may not be eternal. Right. Is that a different kind of love that is eternal? Well, I think that, again, sex is, is meant to be a representation of the already existing spiritual intimacy in a marriage. And there really is, uh, for anyone who has uh, been sexually intimate with someone, I mean, there's a real, I mean, even if you're objectifying the other person, it's impossible for there not to be a connection there. And so anybody who said it was just sex, they're actually lying to themselves. They're trying to make themselves feel better that it was just sex when it wasn't. Um, but yes, yeah, so the, the love, uh, especially the love that Jesus shows us uh, and exemplifies, uh, that God's love is what goes on. Because even in heaven, our faith and hope are going to be realized. Right? In heaven, um, the faith that we have in the Lord Jesus, there he is in front of us, and the hope that we have to be with him for the rest of eternity has been fulfilled in him. And so the love is what, what remains. Which, uh, and that's another issue of the confusion when we talk about intimacy. Everybody immediately in our culture, when we say the word intimacy, jumps to sex. When actually, uh, intimacy is much bigger than that. And I didn't even get a chance to get to the part about people uh, who live in singleness. Because if you're single, uh, you still need intimacy. You, you need life together uh, with people, and although that should not be expressed sexually, it still means that the need is there. So Henry Nouwen, uh, some of y'all may have read Henry Nouwen, a uh, Jesuit priest that gave up a very 
fruitful writing uh, career uh, to move into a large community, which is a, a house where people with special needs come together, and he gave his life over to that. But toward the end of his life, Henry Nowen, this priest, would show up at his friend's door at like 1, 2 in the morning, and he would ask, can you hold me? Now, we might think, that's weird. Uh, but in fact, it's not strange at all because he needed to have some kind of connection with people and to know that he was loved and that he was cared for. And the holding uh, was not at all sexual. It was just a tangible reminder that he was actually uh, living real life and real relationships and real friendships uh, with his friends and that that needed to be demonstrated in some level of intimacy. And when we get married... Uh, typically, we start shutting the door to our friends uh, who are, are single. And we just, it's an afterthought to say, oh, you know, we should have invited them to Thanksgiving. Uh, and not just that, but actually, what does it look like to have uh, a shared life with them? I mean, I get into it often with guys, and the guys are the worst in their 20s. We've got a guy in one of our, um, in my, when I was doing the 20-somethings Bible study, and there was this girl who was interested in him. And, and, and I, went up to, I went over to him, and I said, hey, this girl's interested in you. You should. Uh, I don't have to go to the 11 o'clock, so I'm going to keep going. Uh, you, should, uh, you should ask her out on a date. And he said, well, she's just not my type. I'm like, you know what your type is? Any girl interested in you. That's your type. So, I mean, think of how the Lord is... Like, and when someone says, well, there are, no, there are no guys to marry, or there are no women to marry. Isn't it amazing how God has worked it out that there are almost an equal number of women to men in the world? Isn't that something? Uh, and so, uh, yes, there are people who are called to singleness, but I think that there are a lot of people who are single for all the wrong reasons. Uh, one, I don't think that guys... I mean, I was shocked at a wedding reception about a year or two ago where a guy from Birmingham came up to me and said and was ready to tell a pastor how excited he was like, my girlfriend and I have moved in with one another. And he didn't think anything of it because for him, he was saying to a pastor, look, I'm kind of taking responsibility. I'm kind of taking it to the next level rather than actually setting himself up for complete failure. Because actually, if you live together before you get married, you're 90% more likely to get divorced than the couple that doesn't live together. And I can talk about that for another time. But all that to say, um, you know, the qualifications for marriage, if you're a man, you're looking for a woman who is faithful to the Lord Jesus and is someone that, that you can trust in marriage, right? Who is actually going to be not just your, your wife, but your best friend and vice versa uh, for, for women, and so when people go through this angst about, you know, I don't know, that's actually a worldly idea, this whole idea of, yeah, you want to have a chemistry, uh, a connection, but that's when we're all looking for tall, dark, and handsome. That's not a, a biblical idea. And I think that our heads know that, but our hearts don't. And so we need to start listening to our heads and not listen so much to our hearts. Uh, because you can find someone, he may not be as tall as you want him to be. She may not be uh, as you know, blonde as you want her uh, to be. And yet, if they're faithful followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, and, and another thing, what I'm realizing too is, uh, and I wish I'd known this, uh, and I, it finally worked itself out with Lauren, but you know, the inability to actually ask a woman out on a date. Again, that's a whole other issue. Guys aren't asking women out on dates. And so... Uh, 
it's, we're, we're all cruising for a bruising. And so I'm a big believer in marriage. I don't want to push people into marriage. Uh, but sometimes, especially with the boys, you've got a lot of fire under their rear end. That's biblical. <laughs> all right, if you have other questions, you can always email me. Go in peace, love, and serve the Lord. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.